0: Welcome to Crypto Study Hall. This is your host, Kirsten Wagner, and today we are delighted to have Professor Jim Angel from Georgetown McDonough School of Business.
1: It's an honor to be here.
0: And Jim, you are definitely a global traveler. I know you. one of your hobbies is collecting stock exchange visits. Tell us about um, your travel plans for next week and which stock exchanges you're going to be visiting.
1: Well... One of the things we do with our master's in finance students at Georgetown is we make them do a global consulting project for companies that do business outside the U.S. So I have the honor of working with some student groups that are doing projects in Southern Africa as well as in the United Kingdom. So next week, I am going to hop on an airplane and go to Southern Africa and then zip by the United Kingdom on the way home.
0: That sounds lovely. I would love to go along in your suitcase and, or just be a fly on the wall of that trip.
1: I think you might find it hard to fit into the suitcase. It's, uh, you know, I, I tend to travel very light, so it's a pretty small one.
0: Maybe in the metaverse, I can come along. Oh, I, well, I enjoyed clear. seeing you, when was that, in person, maybe just a week or two ago, speaking with some of your international students at the business school and you know, top of mind, so many of the students were asking, you know, questions about the future of blockchain and crypto regulation. And I know you've caught headlines in the past. And I was just pulling up one of your old tweets where this caught a lot of attention, right? Bitcoin is the new Netscape, a great technical advance that will likely be superseded by other products, leading to big losses for those who get caught up in the bubble frenzy. The cryptos that pay off in the long run will be the ones that provide real utility and cash flows. Can you share some of your thinking behind that and what that experience was like writing that and some of the feedback you got from the public?
1: Well, that tweet went viral and uh, uh, many thousands of people commented that I'm a twit and an idiot for saying something like that. that uh, and who knows, maybe they're right. But you know, when I look at technology, uh, there have been plenty of prototypes that set the stage for future developments but they weren't necessarily the surviving successful entities. And I don't know whether all of your listeners will remember Netscape, but Netscape was really the first browser. And when people were just getting on the internet, they went, wow, Netscape. And Netscape went public and it became a bubblicious stock. But the business model didn't really work because their big product was something they were giving away for free, and when other people like Microsoft and Chrome started giving away free browsers, well, there went their business. So, the first mover doesn't always become the winner. And now, you know, go ahead.
0: No, I mean Ethereum and and Bitcoin are like two of the largest, you know, cryptocurrencies out of. there are so many right now, right? How do you see the space evolving? And, you know, what are your thoughts on the evolution of fintech? Like, is the blockchain the revolutionary technology or is it the, you know, the digital asset on the blockchain or, or both?
1: All of the above. Now, blockchain technology is really a very cool database technology. And that's what a blockchain is. It's a database that records all the transactions but it has some very nice properties that make it very useful in some situations. And in particular, you have many copies of a blockchain, which makes it secure. And you also have a consensus mechanism by which people agree on how to update the database and with crypto security, it makes it very hard. It makes it very easy to spot any tampering with the database. So it's a very secure database. And it's very useful in situations where multiple parties access the same data over and over again. So it makes sense to have a central database, but they don't necessarily trust each other to get it right. And with the crypto world, it makes it possible to transfer any kind of a token of value, whether it's a Bitcoin or a token that represents ownership of a piece of art. You can record the ownership on this public blockchain database and everybody knows that this particular address owns this particular digital token. Now that token can represent ownership of a car or a house or a piece of art or ownership of a digital token like a Bitcoin or an Ethereum. But it is very cool technology with lots of applications that have nothing to do with Bitcoin. Furthermore, the other great thing about Ethereum is it provides a platform that is programmable. And this is why everybody goes, ooh, ah, e, because you know, a smart contract allows you to automate transactions. So if you think about something like a stock option, for example, imagine having one that executes itself at the right time. That can all be automated with software. Now, that's all a soft that's all a smart contract is it's a piece of software that does something but who runs the computer to run that contract ah that's where ethereum comes in ethereum provides a platform for storing and executing those smart contracts hmm. okay well how do you pay people to do that ah you pay them with the ether token where do you get these ether tokens from well you get it by using your computer to help secure the network. So this is really amazing technology with many, many applications. Now, does that mean that Bitcoin or Ethereum are going to be the winners and worth you know, billions of dollars or not? Well, my my crystal ball is in the repair shop today, so I, I, I don't really know what is going to be the winner. But... The problem with Bitcoin is one of its biggest value propositions, and that is it is so hard to change the protocol. It is a social construct, and the maximalists go, oh, only 21 million will ever be created. Well, that may be true, but will anybody want those 21 million? They're just numbers. What can you actually do with them? And When you look at the Bitcoin network, it uses an extremely inefficient protocol called proof of work, which many people would call proof of waste. And Cambridge University has done the calculations. And I was a former electrical engineer in my misspent youth, and I've done the calculations independently, and I come up with similar numbers. And at the current hash rate, it appears that Bitcoin... Processing alone is consuming the equivalent of approximately 19 Chernobyl power plants running around the clock. You know, a Chinese, excuse me, a.
0: That is shocking.
1: Yeah, a large nuclear power plant like Chernobyl produces about one gigawatt of electricity. And right now, at the current hash rate, Bitcoin is guzzling about 19 gigawatts of electricity. And, How does that
0: compare to Ethereum? Just curious.
1: Oh, I haven't done the math on Ethereum. Ethereum right now is in the process of converting to a much more efficient protocol called proof of stake. You know, they're just in the process of doing that right now. And they say that's gonna cut their electricity consumption by 99%. So,
0: so what, what do you think about, um, You know, we, we're talking about the different competing landscapes of different currencies, when I saw you last, we were talking about kind of rule by enforcement at the SEC and what had happened with Ripple, you know, in the XRP lawsuit, right? And they had existed already for, I believe, seven years. And we had, you know, a brilliant speaker on earlier, Sue Friedman from from Ripple, who was talking about that experience. And where again, you don't have a crystal ball. We've got a lot of XRP followers out there. Like what what do you see as novel about the the lawsuit versus is that just more of what we can expect with rule by regulation by enforcement? And 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 do you have any observations on it that might be illuminating to
1: people who are following that development? Oh, if, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And what the regulators have is the enforcement hammer. So when they see something they don't like, guess what? You know, they bring out the enforcement hammer and they depend on the courts to... Have a smell test and say, hmm, that smells bad, so we'll let you use the hammer on them. And that's essentially where a lot of our securities laws have come from. So, for example, if you look at our insider trading laws, we don't have a nice, easy definition of insider trading in the United States code. Instead, you know, what we have is a very vague anti-fraud provision which says any kind of fraud is bad, and we have decades of court cases deciding what is fraud and what isn't fraud. And unfortunately, we're going to be going down this same path you know, in the crypto world. Now, instead of having regulators who like, understand what's going on and figure out how they can achieve their normal regulatory objectives in an efficient way, because there are really good reasons why we, the people, demand regulation of financial services. I mean, we want to make sure money's not being stolen out of our wallet. We want to make sure that we're not being sold fraudulent products. We want to make sure that the intermediaries we depend on aren't going to fail in such a way that we are harmed. We want to make sure that the economy is not going to collapse when something goes wrong. We want to make sure the economy continues to grow. We want to make sure that consumers are protected. And there are more controversial reasons for regulation, like social actions with regard to the environment or equality, things like that. But there are really good reasons why we regulate financial services in every country on the planet. So what we have to do is come up with a way to achieve those objectives in a very efficient way. Now, the problem is just applying old regulations to new technology doesn't always make sense. Yes, we want to protect investors. Yes, you know, we want to make sure the economy is not going to collapse. Yeah, that's pretty clear. But when you have a new technology, it doesn't need to be regulated the same way. You know, new York City you know, has these regulations which say, ah, taxi taxicabs have to be painted yellow so people know that they're taxis. Um, you know, They have to have a bulletproof screen to protect the driver from robbery. Okay. Um, Uber comes in. You know it's an Uber because Uber tells you what license plate is going to pick you up. You don't need to paint it yellow. Uber knows who you are. You know who the driver is. You don't need a bulletproof screen to protect the driver from being robbed because they're not carrying cash. So you don't need the same technology. Excuse me. You don't need the same regulation with a new technology.
0: Where do you see the U.S. versus other countries? I mean, I know you're such a global scholar at this point. Do you think that other countries are ahead of the U.S. in in regulatory clarity, or does the U.S. have catching up to do, or what is the
1: status right now from your perspective on crypto regulation? We have a lot of catching up to do. What many other countries have done in the fintech space is they understand, oh, we have a new technology here. We're not sure what to do, so we'll set up a regulatory sandbox. So in other words, you come in, you register for the sandbox, and it, we're gonna be careful, we're not gonna overregulate you there. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna see how things develop, but we want people to grow up, understanding that as regulators, we want to make sure money's not being stolen from the wallet, we wanna make sure that the economy's not gonna collapse, we wanna make sure that people aren't selling fraudulent products. Yeah, we're still going to do that, but we're going to figure out the best way to do that with this new technology. Instead, in the US, we have a very fragmented and obsolete regulatory structure. You know, the laws that made sense in 1933 don't necessarily make sense in 2022 for a new technology. You know, the technologies we're coming up with today weren't even dreamed about in 1933. And so the regulatory scheme that made sense then needs some updating now. And unfortunately, we have such a fragmented regulatory system. It's based on institutions. Oh, if you're classified as a bank, you report to this regulator. If you report, if you're classified as a commodity firm, you report to a different one. If you're classified as a stock exchange, you go to a different regulator. And, oh, if you're an insurance company, you go to 51 state regulators because we have no national regulation. Hmm. Okay. So when you have new products come in, people go, uh, hmm, gosh, is this one of ours? Uh, or not? And that is the problem. Our regulatory structure is fundamentally obsolete and needs to be restructured from the ground up.
0: And that's really helpful to hear you say that, right? Clearly, because we've had so many guests on who are amazing thought leaders, like Jennifer Lassiter from Digital Dollar Project, um, you know Gabby Cuts from Global DCA, and I think so many people are trying to work to update um, the regulatory framework here, and it it has to be just a huge endeavor. You must be getting so many calls right now on you know kind of your experience with equity market structure and how to apply that to crypto. It, it just must be an incredibly busy time for you.
1: Well, it is an incredibly busy time, but the wrong people aren't making the calls in that the people in the industry know that we've got these problems. The real people that need to address this are at the United States Congress, because traditionally for the last 50 years, the only thing that's happened is every 10 years when there's a crisis, we get a package of Band-Aids that uh, basically puts chewing gum and bailing wire on our dysfunctional structure. You know, we really need to rethink from the ground up how we do financial regulation in the modern digital age. And Congress is not stepping up to the task. You know, they're too busy with their partisan pissing matches to actually pay attention to governing. And that's a problem. Well, I
0: hope we'll have some people from the Hill listening to this podcast and just also just the general public, because I get so many questions about just basic things like what is a what is a cryptocurrency? What is a blockchain? What is um, the metaverse? Really um, important, fundamental questions. So if I were to do a firing round quickly for those who want just like the cliff notes to listen to this section, I'm going to put you on the spot, Professor. What is how do you define as uh, cryptocurrency, then blockchain, then the metaverse—in—in in just a simple definition. Since this okay. is study hall, and we have the original professor here.
1: All so, right. uh, cryptocurrency. The, go for it. I'll start with the easy ones. Okay, blockchain. It's just a database of all the transactions that has multiple copies. It's really secure, really useful, and a lot of uh, dull, boring, mundane back office people are just loving it. The metaverse is real. Uh, it, think of it as online entertainment where you can actually create things and get paid for them. So imagine if you have the ability to buy some property inside Disneyland, think of what you could do with that to basically sell things. This is why people are willing to pay for property in the metaverse because they say, wow, we see that this is an entertainment destination where people are putting on concerts, they have gambling casinos, they have other things that people want to go to. And if I have a place there, I can put up my own entertainment venue, charge people for admission, or my own casino, or my own advertising thing. And so that's real. Now, how big is it going to get? Who knows? But clearly, there are people who are willing to pay to play on online entertainment And some of that will wind up in the metaverse. Now, what is a cryptocurrency? Uh, It's another attempt at uh, creating money, which is actually fairly easy to do. Money is a medium of exchange, and it's something that uh, humans have been creating money out of all kinds of different things.
0: I think seashells
1: at one point, right? Seashells, stones, hunks of metal, pieces of paper, you know, um, electrons, and basically all a payment is is a transfer of spending power. And a money is just sort of a standardized way of transferring spending power. So anything that two people treat as money actually is money. Now, um, people have been creating their own forms of money for a long time. Some of them succeed, some of them don't.
0: Final question for you. I mean, I know your crystal ball is in the repair shop right now, but where do you see the outlook um, for this industry in
1: five years, 50 years? Oh, great question. Uh, We're in the midst of a great technological ferment. We're seeing a lot of entry into the space. And one of the things we know from the history of other technological innovations is when new technology comes in, you see a lot of entry, a lot of new businesses form. and Many, if not most of them, fail. Some of them succeed and become the amazing wealth creators. So if you think about a century ago, we had dozens and dozens of car companies in the U.S. Eventually, many fell by the wayside. We wound up with the big three. And now the technological innovation has come in, and we see a lot of entry into the field. So you know, it's pretty exciting. You know, very uh, hardworking, creative people are entering the field with all kinds of new ideas. You know, some will succeed, many won't. So we're going to see this dynamic ferment over the next few years, which is really exciting. This is going to bring about new products that people hadn't even dreamed of before. That'll be fun. Um, 50 years from now, financial services will still be doing the same basic things they do for society now, that uh, you know, we still need ways of basically saving our money for later and investing it we still need ways of borrowing money and making use of it you know, those you know primitives as we call them aren't going away you know the technology we use to deliver them you know have changed are changing will change as well i think the geopolitical situation will have a lot to do with it that uh, you know i'd love to think that 50 years from now they you know will be in everlasting peace and not have to worry about you know things like sanctions or AML type stuff, um, probably not in 50 years that, uh, you know, unfortunately it's all too easy for a dictator to get control of a country, dismantle democracy and start invading their neighbors. So, you know, we're all always, you know, at least for the next foreseeable century going to have to worry about things like security and stability, but, um, uh, it's going to be a brave new world, an exciting one. Well, we just thank you need so much for to let it happen me. and have a regulatory structure yeah. that allows it to happen.
0: Where can, um, where can people listening now follow you? Do you have a Twitter handle or any sort of website presence if people want to listen to more of what you have to say? Because you never, I think, shy away from, I won't say controversy, but you're one of my favorite people to talk to and that you... Um, aren't really afraid to speak your mind and you will say things that don't always, aren't always met popularly, you know, like the, the big Bitcoin um, moment, but you know, you do speak your truth and you have a really, really shrewd insight and uh, overall perspective of the markets and how innovation fits in. So I always learn so much from, you know, speaking with you. So thank you for your time. It's just so educational.
1: Oh, you're quite welcome. Uh, If uh, anyone wants to stalk me on Twitter, they are welcome to. My Twitter handle is GoofinProf, G-U-F-I-N-P-R-O-F, as in Georgetown University Finance Professor, GoofinProf.
0: Fantastic. Hopefully we can host a crypto study hall, like um, happy hour or something later this year so people can meet in person too. Happy to. Thanks so much for coming on.